Here's a question. What do first century Romans, hippies from the 60s, and Miss America contestants all have in common? Let me repeat that question. What do first century Romans, hippies from the 60s, and Miss America contestants all have in common? Answer, a desire for world peace. A desire for world peace. Just before the first century, Caesar Augustus established what is referred to as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. With the beginning of his reign, there was considerable peace in the Mediterranean world up until the end of the second century. Hippies were known for wanting peace rather than war, and hippie icon Jimi Hendrix is famous for saying, when the power of love is stronger than the love of power, the world will know peace. And thanks to the 2000 hit film Miss Congeniality, Sandra Bullock as well, Miss America contestants are forever characterized as those who want world peace. Now the desire for peace is at all levels of society. It's not just them who want it. We want it. And that desire is good because it's so needed. Our world of wars calls for peace. The countless ruptured relationships and broken homes around us show that we desperately need it. And we could all use a little peace of mind in the chaos of Christmas, right? But unfortunately, peace is so often missing in our world, our relationships, and even our own hearts. Why is that? As humans, separated from our Creator, we're looking for peace in all the wrong places. That's the issue. We're looking for prescriptions for peace when we aren't even clear on what the problem is. This morning, I want to look at what the Bible declares about peace. And let's see if it's weighed and founded, found wanting. The Bible declares that Jesus is the Prince of Peace who alone gets at the root issue and makes peace possible in all the earth. The Bible says that he will guide all mankind in the way of peace. I want to show you this from Luke chapter 2. So if you would, turn there. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And while you do so, also grab your sermon outline. This morning we're going to see the Prince of Peace and his birth, the proclamation of peace and how people respond, and that expansion of peace and how it will spread throughout all the earth. While you're flipping, I want to give the context real quick of our passage. I want you to see that the, the author is after peace here. Right before Luke describes the birth of Christ, he records the prophetic words of Zechariah. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist, and at his miraculous birth, he proclaims this about his son and the Savior. Luke 1.76, John will go before the Lord to prepare his way. And then he says this of the Savior. He likens him to a sunrise who will come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And he comes to guide our feet in the way of peace. Those are the verses leading up to our passage. So Luke chapter 2 is all about this one who will guide our feet into the way of peace. All right, let's read Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus 
that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's look first at the Prince of Peace. Now, Jesus' birth has a context, according to verse 1, and it comes after the high decree of Caesar. We're introduced to Caesar Augustus. This Caesar is Gaius Octavius, the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, who was adopted by him and rose to power in 27 BC. Caesar Augustus had the honorific titles of a son of God and a savior of Romans. That's how they looked at their Caesar. Essentially, they saw him as more than just a man. And it wasn't without warrant because Caesar Augustus is known for expanding the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. It started with him. So wars and rumors of wars were at an all-time low for about 200 years, making Caesar Augustus a very significant king. And we learn that he has decreed that a worldwide registration or a census is to take place. Now, why is that important? Well, there are at least two reasons for telling us about Caesar's census. The first is that Luke is intentionally uh, creating a contrast between Caesar and Christ. Caesar is the king of the known world, but we're going to see that Jesus is born king over all the earth. And Caesar is using this decree to demonstrate his power and his authority. We live in a world where people are always doing things to show themselves. They do all sorts of things to show how great they are, whether it's power or wealth. You can do a quick Google search and you can see how people have bought jets for their own children just because they can. We can see where people have literally made their entire bathroom out of pure gold just because they can, and they want everyone to know that they can. This is the world we live in, and Caesar is no different. He calls for a census to take place so that he can tally up all the people under his authority and then tax them for the Pax Romana to continue. Luke highlights this by telling us in verse verse 1 that all the world should be registered. That's a slight exaggeration. The Mediterranean world is only this big in comparison to the whole earth, but this is how Caesar thinks. And just on a historical note, just to show that census shows power and authority and it makes people upset, Caesar's going to order another census in about 10 years in AD 6, and Jewish zealots are going to get ticked off and they're going to cause a rebellion that we read of in Acts 5.37. Now, why am I saying this? It's because I want you to equate Caesar and census with demonstrating power and authority, which sets up the contrast with Christ. Now, the second reason for mentioning Caesar's census is that Luke is showing how God is providentially working to make sure that Jesus is born in a particular city. So 
Joseph and Mary, they're not reading their Bibles trying to figure out where this king is to be born. Yes, the angel showed Mary that this is going to be the king that they're looking for, but they're not reading their Bible thinking, oh, oh, oh Isaiah says I got to go over here, or Hosea means I need to go over there too. No. Joseph and Mary are just faithful believers living for the Lord, and he's the one bringing about the redemption of people. They are just going about, as it says in verse 3, faithful obedience to governing authorities to travel to his hometown of Bethlehem for the census. My point is, is God's providence is all over this. He's the one ensuring that Jesus is born in Bethlehem which is significant because of what the scripture promises. Let's look at B, the promised birth in Bethlehem. Verses four through six tell us that Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, Nazareth, but because of the census, they've traveled about 90 miles. So a four days journey to Bethlehem in obedience to their governing authorities. And while they're there, Mary's contractions set in. Birth plan goes out the window here in Bethlehem. Now the location of Jesus' birth is key because God has promised through the prophet Micah some 700 years earlier that the ruler of God's people would come from Bethlehem. That prophecy is in Micah 5.2. It reads, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, that is an insignificant city, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. It's also helpful to connect Micah with Isaiah as we looked at in our call to worship earlier. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So the Bible is declaring a few things about Jesus here. He is the promised son of David, the prince of peace from Bethlehem, whose reign will last forever, which means there will be no end to the peace he's creating. It's eternal. Caesar Augustus, the supposed son of God, the savior of the Romans, the establisher of the Pax Romana, he dies. The Pax Romana lasts 200 years and then becomes the things of the good old days in history books. It ends, but not with this king. His kingdom will not end. Now, why is it important to understand the promised Bethlehem birth? Is it not miraculous that this birth was predicted hundreds of years before and therefore demonstrates that the Bible is more than a collection of fanciful stories. Some of you have been told that the Bible is just another religious text among many. Maybe it's a a good thing for you to have in your family to raise your children well. 
a resource for life improvement rather than the revealed word of God to obey. I want you to see that the scripture takes great pains to give you the truth with real people, real places, and real prophecies being fulfilled so that you might recognize the weight of what is before us. The Bible isn't messing around with fictional fairy tales on moral lessons simply to help us cope with life's struggles. No. Life and death, heaven and hell are in the balance. And God has providentially brought us an eternal king born in Bethlehem that we might believe in him and be saved in him. Well, how does this babe born in Bethlehem ascend to the throne of his father David to reign over this eternal kingdom? Verse 7 helps us to see that and answer that question. So look again with me at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So we see here the humble nature of his birth and the picture of his path to the throne. We are told that the baby is born and he's placed in a manger. More helpfully translated, a feeding trough. And Luke tells us the reason that he's in that trough is because there's no room for him anywhere else. Now, I don't believe we're supposed to read these verses and think, Joseph, you're a poor planner. Come on, man. Get the hotel set up. Get everything ready for your family. That's your fault he's in a manger. No, 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 no. The text is simply highlighting that they are poor people. The word in can be translated guest room, which is what most people had back in those days and how hospitality usually worked. You would stay with relatives, even if they were way off extended family. And so what we're seeing in this passage is that Joseph and Mary didn't get a nice room but had to stay in the house where they housed animals because they're the least prominent relatives in town at that time which is why they had to grab a feeding trough. It's the closest thing next to them to put their baby in. We also learn in chapter 2, verse 22, that when it was time to present Jesus and give the offering, they didn't give the normal offering. They gave the poor offering of two turtle doves. This passage is trying to show us that this is a poor family. Verse 7 highlights the Prince of Peace is born in an insignificant city to an insignificant couple in an insignificant place. Why? Because Jesus is the humble king that will, and this will pave the path forward for him to go to the throne of David and reign. We learn from Mary's famous Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, verse 52, that God will bring down the mighty from their thrones and exalt those of humble estate. So he's going to bring down mighty Caesar and all those who are proud in their heart but he's going to exalt those who are humble. And so for Jesus to be king, he has to start lowly. And what's more humble than a king in a feeding trough? All of this is foreshadowing Jesus' path to the throne. The cross comes before the crown. Philippians 2, 8 to 10 describes that path for you and I. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
Because he was humble, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humble obedience is the path to the throne. That's pictured in this humbled birth for us. The Prince of Peace born in an insignificant city to an insignificant couple in an insignificant place. Now, let's step back and ask, how does the Prince of Peace promote peace in our lives based on these first seven verses? I think there's peace, incredible peace, in God's providence, his providential care of people. While Mary, while Mary and Joseph are going about life being faithful believers, we see God putting them in the right places where they need to be in life. It's not comfortable to be in a manger scene. It's not comfortable to be kicked around in Nazareth and Bethlehem and all of these things. It wasn't comfortable where they were, but it was oh so comforting based on who is working all things together for a purpose. Does it not bring you incredible peace to know that God is providentially working all things together for your good, for your redemption? Our peace isn't based on where we are in life or the circumstances we are in, whether good or not. Our peace is in who is with us through it all. Emmanuel, God with us. There is great peace in God's providential care for you and me. We can be humble before the mighty hand of God because we know that he's working all things together for good. So we've looked at the Prince of Peace. Now let's look at number two, the proclamation of peace. Look with me at verses eight through 20. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. And they were saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen 
as it had been told to them. Here our attention is being brought to another area of Bethlehem where an angel of the Lord appears to some shepherds by night. Now a helpful question is, why are we being told these things? The answer is, is that we need this angelic announcement to interpret for us what is taking place. The significance of Jesus' birth needs to be revealed to us so that we can see it for what it is and respond rightly. Without this scene, you would not know how to respond to so great a king. Allow me to give an example. It's kind of like when I was in high school and my choir director told our choir that we were going to sing in Carnegie Hall. Now, many of you, when you hear that, know exactly what Carnegie Hall stands for and how prestigious that is. But for this 15-year-old Missouri boy, I didn't know anything about Carnegie Hall. I didn't know where it was or how prestigious it was. So when she said that, I said, oh, is that somewhere else in Missouri? You see, I needed my choir director to explain we'd been invited to Carnegie Hall to sing and that that was one of the most prestigious places in all of America. Only when I understood it from her was I able to respond rightly, wow, we get to go do that. We need people to interpret things so that we can see it for what it is. And that's what all these verses are about, revealing the significance so that we can respond rightly. In verse 8, shepherds are watching over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appears visibly before them. The angel's appearance is attended by God's glory shining around them. The light is piercing through this dark night on the farm. And these shepherds react like any of us would, (laughs) with great fear at what's before them. But the angel says they should have great joy on this night rather than fear because the angel is bringing good news for all the people. News that will bring great joy to all the world. Now, what's the basis for this great joy? Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here the angel begins to interpret for us the significance of Jesus' birth. We have there three descriptions of Jesus. The angel calls him a savior, Christ, and Lord. There's a lot packed into those three titles. By calling him Christ or Messiah, the angel is announcing that Jesus is the promised son of David, like we saw in Micah and Isaiah. By calling him Lord, the angel is announcing that Jesus isn't a mere man, but he's God. And by calling him Savior, the angel is announcing that Jesus is the one we need. Because Savior means that we need to be saved from something, right? Matthew 1.21 says that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That's what we need a Savior for. Today in the city of David, a Savior for all the people has been born who is Christ the Lord. Please understand, this is one of the most significant moments in all of history. When the Son of God took on flesh so that he could live faithfully and die obediently in our place on the cross, incarnated to be crucified for us so that we could be freed from sin's power in our lives now and sin's punishment in eternity. 
This reality is not lost on the angels. One, of the, one angel reveals this truth, but it's a multitude of angels that break out into a chorus of praise in response to so great a savior. Verse 14, they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Yes, God is worthy to be praised because of the birth of Christ and for the things it brings. It brings glory to God and his birth brings peace on the earth among those in whom God delights. These angels are declaring that through Christ, peace will fill this earth like the waters cover the sea. But notice that it's happening somewhere specific. It's among those with whom God is pleased, the humble and the lowly. It's happening in and through God's people, made right with him through Christ. Now, I want you also to notice that the revealing and the responding doesn't stop with the angels. In verses 15 through 20, we see, number two, the sharing of shepherds, and number three, the response of all the witnesses to this event. After this angelic moment, the shepherds make haste for Bethlehem. They're looking for the sign of a baby lying in a manger. Verse 15 says that their reasoning for going is that they want to see what the Lord has made known to them. Upon finding the child, verse 17, the shepherds make known to everyone what the angels have declared to them. Now this is totally a God moment to allow shepherds, lowly shepherds, to witness and report these events. Shepherds are simple, lowly, humble people. They're rough, rugged, individual farmer types. They're blue collar. They're the last person that any of us would ever pick to be the herald of a great message like this. In a lineup of people we'd choose, we would choose the person with the highest level of education and the greatest capacity to communicate. Not a shepherd, not a farmer. But God is showing us that in every way, he despises the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's pleased with the lowly. So the shepherds share what they've seen and heard, and now we see number three, the responses of all who witnessed these things. We see the first response in verse 18. It's wonder. God's wisdom and ways are unsearchable and inscrutable, and it leaves people wondering and marveling when they see things happen. But it's not enough to simply marvel at the things of God, to see the things of him and be shocked. Notice that verse 19 creates a subtle contrast for us. All who heard wondered, but Mary treasured up all these things. Wonder in this passage is kind of like a kid on Christmas morning. It's the kid who grabs the box and starts unwrapping it to find the toy, and they go, wow! Next one. They move on right after it's been such an incredible moment. You're like, how did you move on so quickly? That's wow and move on. That's not marveling. Marveling is much different. I'm sorry, treasuring is much different. Mary treasured what is happening right here. How did she treasure? By pondering what's going on in her heart. So the Bible is creating a contrast for us. It's not the wow and move on that we need with Jesus. It's the treasuring and pondering all the significant things of Christ. 
It's taking it in. It's pondering it and allowing change to occur in our hearts and minds and in our lives. We also see that treasuring and changing in the shepherds. Having heard and seen the Prince of Peace and now believing that there will be peace on earth, the shepherds return to their flocks in verse 20, responding, as it says, glorifying and praising our great God of peace. Now let's pause here. I want to ask you if you are treasuring the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I get the privilege of sharing the gospel with many people in Manchester. Most of the people I share the gospel with are those who listen to it and it goes in one ear and out the other. That's not what the Bible is calling us to, calling us to this morning. Now there are many things that you and I can have that wow and move on, but not the things of Christ. Not the, cost, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one we should treasure, the one we should ponder in our hearts to the point that it pierces our hearts and we call out with repentance and faith and be saved. I don't know where all of you are this morning. Maybe you've been rejecting Christ. Maybe you've been on the fence about Christ. Or maybe you're a person that has a wow-like reaction to the things of Christianity, but it's not a treasuring faith. Could I ask you to look at verse 19 with me? Put yourself in Mary's place. I want to ask you to pray that you'd be a person who treasures all the things of Christ to the point of change. Because letting this good news of great joy go in your ear and out the other is the most tragic decision you could ever make. It's tragic because the cost of ignoring will cost you your life. To reject our Savior is to choose to bear the wrath of our Lord forever and eternity. Don't let this be a day of in one ear and out the other. Let this be a day where you ponder the gospel of Jesus Christ and it becomes a day of great joy for you in your salvation. We've seen the Prince of Peace and the proclamation of peace. Now, how does the peace of Christ spread across all the earth? We need to connect the dots between the Prince of Peace and World Peace so that we're clear on how peace expands across all the earth. So let's look at number three, the expansion of peace. The Bible teaches that the reason we have a world filled with sin and brokenness is because we've sinned and broken our relationship with God. That means that peace on earth must start with God. If you guys have read your Bible, you know you don't have to read very far to see this play out. We see in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin against God. And what happens in chapter 4? Cain kills Abel. Hostility with God becomes hostility with men. But Jesus came into this world and he lived perfectly obedient to God in our place so that he could die in our place. And because he has fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood, you and I can be restored to the one who made us. Romans 5.1, some of the most precious words in all of Scripture. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God only comes through Jesus. And when things are right between us and God, we can have peace within ourselves. Early church father Augustine once wrote in a prayer to our Lord, You have made us for yourself, God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Having our greatest area of hostility dealt with, having our greatest relationship restored, we can have peace in the lesser things of life. We can have peace in our heart despite whatever we face. Peace in every sphere of our lives. That means we can have peace with who God has made us to be. Weaknesses and quirks included. We can have peace where we are in life. Both past wounds and present woes included. We can have peace with why God is doing what we're doing, what he's doing in our lives, because we know he's providentially working all things together for our salvation. Can I ask a question? How are you doing this morning? Christmas is a restless time. Gifts to buy, parties to host, and family relationships that all cause us to lose sleep and be anxious about. In resting in Christ for your salvation, is your heart ceasing from its restlessness in the day-to-day? It can be. It's right there for us, brothers and sisters, because we have a prince who has purchased that peace with his precious blood. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 say, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be restless about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Trusting in him produces peace right now. Oh, how true is the hymn, I need thee every hour. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. But this peace doesn't stop with us. The peace of Christ extends and it expands beyond us to the ends of the earth. It's between you and me, between Jews and Gentiles and everybody in between. The Bible speaks of this reality in Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He's made all of us, both one, and has broken us down, broken that down, that hostility in his flesh. He's done all of this so that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. He's bringing everyone together. The blood of Christ unites us to God, and it unites us to every kind of people that he's saving. Christ has brought peace on earth, and now you and I, we get to foster and maintain the peace that Christ is creating between us. Now, I know that is messy. It is exceedingly difficult to live at peace. But 
nothing worth it ever is, right? We get the privilege of fostering and maintaining peace with one another. So I want to ask, how are you doing at promoting relationships of peace? Are you promoting peace in relationships? Are you praying for peace in friction-filled relationships with other believers? Are you seeking to be lowly and humble like our Savior? Are you extending forgiveness and are you asking for forgiveness when you've done wrong? Peaceful relationships doesn't mean that we never have problems. It means that we're committed to working through things together with forbearance and forgiveness. Do you know why the Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins? It's because our relationships are so tangled with all sorts of messy moments. We need love to cover those complicated he said, she said moments. We just need forbearance and forgiveness to cover the complicated relationships we have so that peace can characterize those relationships. This holiday season also means we will see friends and family, some walking in faith, others opposed to God, and some where their faith is with God, it's just better to say it's complicated. You don't even know where they're at with the Lord. We have a chance to promote peace, the peace of Christ in those relationships. And you and I can be thinking right now and praying for those interactions because we know it just might be that this occasion is the one that the Lord uses to bring the peace of Christ into their hearts and into our fractured relationships. Now, I know what you're thinking. Garrett, that's a pipe dream for my family. But it isn't unrealistic to think and pray this way. It's a sanctified optimism that believes nothing is impossible with God. That's the God we belong to. We hope all things. We believe all things. And so we spread peace to everyone. The peace of Christ is also expanded across this earth when we are obedient to what we've been commissioned to do. Like the shepherds, we want to make Christ known throughout all the earth in obedience to the Great Commission. We don't have to be fancy or fluffy or anything in between. We just have to be like the shepherds, share what we have seen and what we've heard. We've heard that there is a Savior that has been born and he has died for the sin of men. And we can also share what we've seen, that he's transformed my heart, my life, my family, and my church. And all we have to do is share that with people. Make known Christ to people because he is bringing peace between all of us and he's making it visible in the local church. That's where the peace of Christ is on display, right here. I want to ask, how are you doing at promoting the proclamation of peace? Are you praying for souls? Praying for more gospel laborers for the harvest and sharing the gospel yourself? We've been tasked with a peace mission as gospel ambassadors. We see that in Luke 24. We are to make known the peace of Christ because it's the only thing that will ever change this world. All other notions are wishful thinking. So let's make the mission of the church the calling of our lives. 
so that all the world will sing the song of angels, that we would all respond rightly by the one who revealed it to us. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Christmas is chaotic. So let's keep our focus simple this Christmas season. In knowing the Prince of Peace, may we ponder the significance of our Savior like Mary. May we praise him fittingly like the angels and proclaim him to others like the shepherds. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the Prince of Peace. We were at enmity with you, but oh God, you have brought us near by the precious blood of your Son. Father, give us the grace to ponder our Savior, having peace with you, now fighting for peace within, and given the task of proclaiming peace to everyone around us. Oh God, let it be so for us who belong to the Prince of Peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.